0: Hello, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host for today's show, Bentley Kaplan, and it is my first show of 2021, and it feels like a big year for ESG, round two of a crazy pandemic, and so another year of my home recording studio slash bedroom. It's great to be back, and on today's episode, we've got a couple of tasty stories to whet your ESG appetites. First up, we'll be taking a look at the murky intersections between corporate governance and governments after the French government vetoed a friendly takeover of the supermarket giant Carrefour by the Canadian convenience store Titan, couche And then we pay another visit to a regular feature on this show, ExxonMobil, as we turn over the company's recent announcement that it will be strengthening its carbon capture efforts. Thank you for sticking around, let's do this. So, allow me to set the scene. We have a giant French company, Carrefour. It's a specialist retailer, with thousands of stores globally, offering a broad range of products, from fresh produce, to meats and fish, bakery products, health and beauty products, and some other odds and ends. In 2019, the company made more than $83 billion in sales. And even though it has operations all over Europe and parts of Latin America, it's also the largest private employer in France, with hundreds of thousands of workers. Then we have the Canadian company Couchtard, which, like Carrefour, has thousands and thousands of stores, also in Europe, but extending into parts of Asia and the US. Kushtad also did a pretty decent $52 billion in sales in 2019 and has 130,000 employees. Now Kushtad has been making quite a few acquisitions of late and the company's eye would eventually settle on Carrefour. The company made an offer and hey presto, Carrefour's shareholders liked the offer and a friendly takeover was in the air. But then, well, I'll let my colleague Florian Sommer take it from here.
1: Talks were progressing. Carrefour shareholders were sort of open uh, to selling their stakes as part of this proposed friendly takeover. Kustar pledged to invest three billion dollars into Carrefour, but then the French government in January said, "No, this is not going to happen. We're going to block this deal." The reason being that Carrefour is a strategic company, and we have to protect France's food security. So essentially, this was blocked um, based on the strategic. Uh, considerations. And the way they did it, I think, is interesting because the French government invoked new so-called investment screening powers. Now, this is something that has been around for a long time. Many governments have them, But what is new um, is that in recent years, these powers have been expanding, Um, not just in France, in other countries as well. Uh, And what stands out particularly from a governance perspective is that they were able to do that Um, without actually being a significant shareholder in the company. The French government doesn't hold a significant ownership stake in Carrefour. They don't have any board representatives. This traditional means um, of influencing a company's strategy, this is not what happened here. This is sort of an interesting way of shaping a company's strategy.
0: Exactly. Despite a majority of shareholders from two companies deciding it would be a good idea to partner up and right on into the corporate sunset and despite not being a major shareholder in either company, the French government weighed in and used something called investment screening powers, which basically allowed them to block this acquisition by a foreign company. And before anyone starts banging on a dustbin lid, crying socialism socialism, it's worth pointing out that a government veto like this is nothing new. It happens in many other markets, in places where shareholder rights are pretty well protected places like Germany and the US. And before we get into the implications of these little government manoeuvres, I push Florian to give us a little more colour on the how. What sort of tricks a government has up its sleeve to start pulling these seemingly invisible strings?
1: Obviously the state has lots of power and lots of mechanisms to interfere in the economy. It can make rules, it can pass laws. Can talk about taxes and supervisory authorities but what we're talking about here is the state determining the strategy making strategic decisions for individual specific companies and so one way of doing that is as we've seen through these investment screening powers but there are other ways and other mechanisms as well and one of them is um, what's called golden shares which are essentially a special equity class that is usually issued to the government and that confer special decision-making powers to the government. The second example that I'd like to mention, and that's actually also something that's um, very relevant in France, is loyalty shares. They're essentially a mechanism whereby after two years of share ownership, the shareholder gets double voting rights. So if you're a long-term shareholder, you have more voting power. Um, And that's true for all shareholders, so not only the state.
0: Okay, so the proverbial state and this is many states, not just the French one, has a few tricks up its sleeve to get involved in the strategic directions of companies, even when they hold no shares or just one token golden share. And this state involvement has usually happened in industries that have a national strategic importance. Think infrastructure or aerospace and defence. But it's starting to happen in newer places too, where risks like cyber espionage have made it very difficult for international acquisitions of hardware and software specialists. If a national government finds that the interests of its people or its security or sovereignty are at risk, it makes sense that the interests of a company's shareholders may not end up at the top of the priority pile. The French government used some pretty clear justifications for their veto, including the fact that Carrefour is the biggest private employer in France, so what happens to the company has a direct and major impact on the country's workforce. But also because the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted how fragile supply chains can be, and the role of Carrefour in promoting food security in France was deemed to be of strategic national importance. People gotta eat, yo. And I don't know if you can sense it, but we are on the edge of a very deep rabbit hole here. One where we get into the complex debate about the role of governments, the role of companies, and how each should serve their stakeholders. And just who those stakeholders actually are questions about just how french a company is when it earns less than half of its revenue inside france or fun angles like the one raised by quebec's minister of the economy when he said that quote as we speak to promote the fact that couche could be a good owner as alstom became a good owner of bombardier transport end quote in a nod to the canadian government's approval of a French company acquiring a major Canadian business just a few years back. But we only have 20 minutes, and I've got Exxon waiting in the wings for the next segment, so for now, we're just going to focus on one part of this intriguing governance tale. What does all of this mean for investors?
1: The potential concern from a governance perspective is that it was ultimately the government and not shareholders or the board who took the decision on this potential merger. So typically what you would have is that the shareholders would actually decide on takeover offers. That wasn't the case. The government didn't hold and doesn't hold a big ownership stake, but still they were able to take this strategic decision. Um, And so from that perspective, it's essentially a reduction of the role of shareholders in making these decisions. And, And sort of another way of saying it is that You have a case where there's a disconnect or misalignment between decision-making power for the state and its direct economic exposure to the company's business and i think this is sort of maybe the larger takeaway for investors is that there are all these different mechanisms out there where the government can wield disproportionate influence compared to its investment in a specific company and this is something that is a potential concern for investors because it essentially, on some of these important strategic decisions, reduces their role.
0: And from a story of shareholder influence being diluted, we turn to one where their persistence may be starting to bear some fruit. Because in a long-running tug-of-war between one of the world's biggest oil and gas companies and climate-concerned investors, a big, big ship is showing early signs of a slow turn. Again, let's give you some context. By all accounts, ExxonMobil is a behemoth. It produces the most oil of any US company. It has 75,000 employees and billions of barrels of proved reserves. And because of its size, what Exxon does matters. And it really matters for investors interested in climate change. Because not only is Exxon's main business pulling vast quantities of carbon out of the ground for its clients to burn, but the company also expends quite a bit of carbon to get there. Exxon's Scope 1 and Scope 2 emissions in 2018 were 124 million tons of carbon dioxide. So, maybe unsurprisingly, investors have been nipping at the company's heels for the past few years, pushing for more disclosure, for stronger targets, for ideas on how the company could weather a low carbon shift. And until very recently, not a whole lot has happened from Exxon's side. But that may be changing. Sort of. Or at least that's the way the salty veteran of our ESG team, Antonius Panaitopoulos, sees it.
2: So, uh, yeah, so Exxon announced uh, the other day, uh, well, in the beginning of February, uh, that uh, they will be essentially creating ExxonMobil Low Carbon Solutions, a branch of the company that is intended to capitalize on low carbon uh, opportunities, starting with carbon capture and storage. And then uh, there was a following uh, kind of uh, announcement saying that they will dedicate uh, 3 billion uh, USD. From uh, 2020 to 2025, so it comes, um, it comes roughly like lower than one billion per year to the development of those solutions. Uh, Exxon has been uh, kind of uh, of the leaders in that uh, field. Uh, the company claims that they uh, reports that they have captured more than 120 million tons of CO2 uh, since. The 1970s, of course, it is interesting, though, because in some cases, especially in the U.S., uh, where there is also an active tax, uh, which also supports the use of CCS. But most of those tons, those actual tons of CO2 have been reused in enhanced oil recovery. So sometimes producers will use carbon in their reservoirs to stimulate production. Uh, Therefore, capturing CO2 does not necessarily mean that that CO2 is not released in the atmosphere further down the supply chain.
0: Right. So Exxon is saying that it has plans to roll out some carbon capture technology for its operations to claw back some of the carbon it's emitting while it, you know, digs carbon out the ground. And look. $3.5 billion is nothing to sniff at, especially for a company that looks like it lost around $20 billion in 2020. But unless you've been following the back and forths between Exxon and its shareholders, you may not know that there will be a bunch of very sceptical investors out there, taking a long, hard look at this announcement. Because the company has put a lot of zeros on the amount of carbon it has captured to date, something around 120 million tons, since the 1970s. Which, on the face of it, sounds like a lot. But for context, that's about the same amount of carbon that the company put back out into the atmosphere in 2018 alone. And that's only looking at scope 1 and scope 2 emissions, forgetting what happens to its oil once it gets sold on to clients. So it's maybe hard to know how convinced investors will be about this latest announcement, just how big a turn the company is actually making.
2: Exxon for for long has resisted investor calls for more scrutiny, uh, if you like, of the company environmental footprint on ways to reduce that footprint and actually provide investors with a concrete strategy steps on how to uh, go about the energy transition. In MSCI, we, we keep a long history of uh, shareholder proposals. action. in most of the cases in AGMs, the proposals asking for uh, stronger action against climate change have not passed. In 2017, it was the first time that we saw a proposal about greater transparency on scope one and two emissions uh, kind of move ahead. But then, the investor world, if you like, has moved further than that. And now there have been calls on oil and gas companies to align strategies to, to be compliant to a two degree temperature increase, to, so to meet uh, the Paris Agreement goals. And Action has been particularly resistant to those calls. Now we see that Action is getting, if you like, a bit ahead of uh, this year's AGM. I think that uh, we see if you like the first steps of an oil and gas major, uh, one of the biggest to actually institutionalize the renewables energy or the low carbon solutions arm of the business as a regular, if you like, business segment. And that follows other, what other European firms have been doing uh, since 2017, 2018. So uh, it's definitely a step in the right direction.
0: And that is it for the week. It's great to be back on the show. I had a lot of fun putting this episode together, a lot of fun getting into the weeds of corporate governance and the way that shareholders may have to navigate an increasingly tricky landscape where the mosaic of national strategic interests becomes just a little more colourful. And I even had fun taking a closer look at Exxon, knowing that a positive step, no matter how small, is better than no step at all. But at the same time, appreciating that it's getting harder and harder for companies to pull the wool over the eyes of investors. Investors that have ESG powered x-ray vision. Or something, you know, a little cooler than that. A massive thanks to Florian and Antonius for their take on the news with an ESG twist. It is always a pleasure shoving a mic between them and their work. Thank you very much for tuning in, give us the old rate and review if you can. Subscribe to the show if you have it in your hearts. But for reals, we love your feedback, your suggestions. So if there's anything ESG or ESG adjacent on your mind, let us know. Catch you again very soon. The MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor, and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, and this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.